Welcome to Hiraith, the home of modern Welsh politics. Over half the Welsh government budget, £8.5 billion this year, is focused on health. Politically, it remains a hot potato, and last week the waiting list times were released, showing again record numbers, 743,000 people waiting across all lists in Wales. Many argue that Wales performs poorly compared to other UK countries in health. So what is the state of health in Wales? Joining us tonight to look exactly where Wales is, is Professor John Barry, Consultant General Surgeon specialising in metabolic surgery at Morrison Hospital, Clinical Director of the Integrated Surgical Services Group, and recently appointed Director in Wales of the Royal College of Surgeons. Welcome, John. Hi, welcome, thanks. Uh, and joining John is Laurie Jackson, Head of Policy and Campaigns for the Royal College of Physicians in Wales, who leads the college's communication work across Wales and Northern Ireland. Hello, Lori. Hi. Thank you for joining us both. So devolution is into its uh, third decade, and we've seen some key policies delivered in, in the health sphere, such as free prescriptions. Uh, but when it comes to the health of the nation, uh, where are we? I mean, last week we saw that the, the top-level stat is that one in four people in Wales is on a waiting list of some sort. How would you describe it, Lori? Gosh, the... Uh, news coverage is, is is pretty bleak at the moment. It, it feels like it's a long time since we've had a good news story in Wales for, for the health service, compounded, of course, by two years of pandemic. Uh, we went into the pandemic with workforce shortages. We went into the pandemic with waiting lists. So, you know, there's, there's very little to be excited about at the moment. We need to do a lot more around prevention of ill health, and we need to do a lot more around recruiting and retaining the workforce that we've got. I don't work on the front line. John does. John can talk in a lot more detail about the morale um, and the burnout among staff, but that's that's the sort of thing that we're hearing a great deal from the people that I work with, from 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 the doctors that that, that work that I work with. Don't worry, we'll we'll certainly get on to preventative health and and also uh, workforce burnout later on, Lori. But uh, John. Where do you think we are in terms of the health service? Well, it's, it's certainly a palpable statistic, isn't it? One in four people waiting on a, a patient pathway. Something I would comment on about that is we don't actually understand, we haven't drilled down to what actually, that actually means. You could have one patient who's waiting on a, a number of pathways for whatever, but you know the, the numbers are significant. Um, you know, Lowry has already mentioned that we were we were in a pretty difficult place prior to the pandemic you know we've had two two and a half years where things essentially have been on sort of standstill and I know from my my own experience I work in Swansea Bay in Morrison Hospital I, I I'm fully aware of, of 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 the task facing us moving forward we are we are a sick country we can't ignore the fact that we have huge areas of social deprivation and we know over many years that social deprivation is associated with with ill health so we have increased rates of cardiovascular disease we have increased rates of cancer we, we are really facing an uphill task here and what we need to do is to, to to plan our way out and there are many strategies which i think we'll come on to in this podcast i think you know everyone accepts that the pandemic has obviously hit the nhs in wales but can you put it into words just the sort of impact it had to frontline services yeah, I can. In fact, I'll be honest with you, hand on heart, I was rather dispassionate at the start of this. I didn't realise what was coming down the road until, um, you know, we had sort of phone calls, rather sort of panicked phone calls starting right at the start of the pandemic where I wasn't clinical director at the time. I was just, a, you know, a, a consultant surgeon doing my own calls. And I had uh, 
go around the hospital with some of the senior managers and senior clinical staff. Within sort of 24, 48 hours, our theatres were, were, were converted into makeshift intensive care units. The modelling was frankly apocalyptic. Our surgical admissions unit um, was transformed in a matter of days into a respiratory assessment unit. And the senior uh, medical matron took me around, said, this is, the, this is the front where the ambulances come in. This is the triage facility. Then we decide which patients we will admit. Some patients we won't admit. They may be too sick. And as we went through the ward, progressed through the wards, we came to the last room, said, this is where we're going to put the bodies. And that really sort of you know, struck, struck a nerve for obvious reasons. So we didn't really know what to expect. We were confident that there would be a vaccine because we, a lot of work has been done on vaccine development over the years, but we, we, we didn't know. And we, we couldn't work from home. You know, we, we, we're front-facing clinical staff, uh, not just the doctors, the nurses, the physios, everybody worked in the hospital. We couldn't, we couldn't work from home, so we had to be at the shop floor. We engineered emergency on-call rotors overnight, so we had two consultant surgeons present on the shop floor, and we had to completely change the way that we worked. So, for example, if you went into hospital today with acute appendicitis, you're probably going to end up having your appendix. Now, we had to change the way that we managed these surgical conditions. So we were treating a lot of patients with antibiotics. We were trying to get patients out of the hospital. We were looking for, for PPEs, and you know, I don't want to go into the whole PPE debate, but at the start, it was quite worrying. And I remember the sort of fear in the faces of some of my nursing colleagues on the ward, because we, we just didn't know what was going to happen. And then things unfolded and things settled down. But we, we, we were stressed as a health service in Wales prior to this. But things are completely out of, well, no, I wouldn't say out of control. It isn't broken. But we have a, a massive task ahead of us in order to get things back, back on track, as it were. So it was, it, was, it, was a, it was a frightening time for all of us. But, you know, I'm glad to say we, we got through it. I, th I think as well, and I'm speaking as somebody who was, um, I was actually on maternity leave when the first wave started. So I was trapped at home in my own with a four-year-old, a two-year-old and a newborn. But my sister's an oncologist and I was speaking to her a lot. And of course, you know, like John says, she was going in every day. You know, she, she didn't have the advantage or the ability to work from home. And I think there were two very distinct waves. That first wave, everybody pulled together, everybody clapped you know, um, hospitals emptied whatever beds they could, you know, people freed up the capacity. Um, I remember speaking to my sister and she said, actually, it's the quietest the hospital's ever been in some respects because they'd emptied everybody they could out of the hospital. Everybody was pulling together. It was a frightening time, as John says, because the uncertainty. But, you know, unless you were actually working in the absolute thick of acute care, it was a time that, you know, everyone pulled together. There was a sense of camaraderie. By the time the second wave hit over that winter of 2020, you know, everybody had done six, nine months of this on the front line. Elective care didn't stop the second time round. And so that exhaustion, that frustration, you know, a lot of the public support for lockdown, the public support for staying at home, the public support for mask wearing, all of that had started to, to disappear. But I think it's really difficult to imagine if you don't actually work in the four walls of a hospital or in the four walls of a GP surgery or, you know, out in the community as a, as a, as a social worker or, you know, the people who carried on going into people's houses, it's really difficult to imagine how that kind of pressure over two years with a depleted workforce, like what that puts on people. John, 
what kind of impact did this whole process have on staff? But also, what kind of impact is that now having on staff's ability to deal with the backlog? Well, I think it was the whole thing was a massive catharsis for everybody, not just people who work in the health service, people who work in whatever sector. You know, people sort of had a look at their, their, their own lives, where they work, where they live, what they want to do. And, and, and you know, we, we're not... We're no different in the, in the National Health Service. You know, I've got colleagues who, who, who have left uh, working in the, in the National Health Service as a consequence of this. You know, it is difficult working in the National Health Service at the moment for, for many reasons. Lori's already mentioned that 18 months ago, people were, were, were clapping on the, on the doorsteps. Now, many of the particularly tabloid newspapers are, you know, headlines. You can't, you can't see a general practitioner for, for whatever length of time. We are stressed. Uh, we were stretched in terms of our, of our resource. We're stretched in terms of, of, of workforce. You know, we can talk about strategies about how we're going to get out of this situation, but we can't get away from the fact that in terms of workforce, we can change the way that we work. We can, we can open up new operating theatres. We can have more clinics. But in terms of workforce, we just haven't got enough. So some morale is, is getting hit at the moment. Cost of of living at the moment in terms of you know people's day to day spending. There's constraints on that, and you know I've I've spoken to many of my uh, nursing colleagues on the ward, particularly new nurses who have started. They're not starting on an awful lot of money. They've got a lot of debt, and it's difficult for them to come in every day and to take home wages that aren't really allowing them to to live a sort of comfortable life. So morale is is a big issue at the moment in the NHS. Obviously. By the sounds of it, retention is a very difficult thing. But Lowry, how is the NHS trying to deal with this through recruitment? Is there a recruitment problem in the NHS at the moment? In short, yes, absolutely. Um, last year, so this is for the year of 2021, of all of the consultant physician posts advertised across Wales, across all the health boards and all the trusts, only 36% were filled. I mean, that's crazy. That's a third of Consult, that means two-thirds of consult, consultant posts are going unfilled. In 71% of cases, that was because there were no applicants. Quite literally, nobody applied for the job. And that's not because people don't necessarily want to come to Wales either. I mean, there are, there's a consultant crisis in every part of the UK. This isn't, this isn't unique to Wales. This isn't a Welsh problem as such. We just haven't trained enough consultants over the last 10, 15, 20 years. We haven't looked far enough ahead. We haven't looked at projected patient demands the way we should. You know, we know that we're going to have a spike in about 10 years of older people. We know we are. You know, the, 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 the baby boomers of the 50s are going to be in their 80s in another 10, 15 years. Where are the geriatricians? Where are the older age psychiatrists? Where are the GPs and the, the primary care and the palliative medicine? We're not modeling what the demographic will look like in 20 years and planning for that. I think one of the things that frustrates me most about the NHS at the moment, and I spend an awful lot of time talking about this over and over again, is that we also don't really know on paper how bad the problem is. You know, nobody's gathering that data. No, certainly nobody's publishing that data. We don't know. I mean, every single health board recruits itself. So there isn't a central strategy. There isn't anybody looking at, say, stroke medicine across Wales. How many vacancies are there? At what level are they? Are there consultant vacancies? Are there training grade vacancies? Could, for example, if a Sputty Gwyneth needs a stroke consultant and can't recruit, could we put somebody in Ceredigion who could maybe travel up? But there's no... That cross-border working just doesn't happen in the way that we need it to. You know, one of the things that the, the college, that the college I work for has been talking about is actually having this national workforce plan 
that, that sets out the number of vacancies, the patient demand that we know is coming up across the horizon, and then actually says, well, where are these people going to come from? And how do we keep them in Wales? I think we know that the vast majority of doctors in training will prioritise geography over anything else. So if we can get them into training posts in Wales and, and make sure they're happy in those posts, they'll most likely apply for a consultant post in the same area. But you've got to make life good for them. You've got to pay them the right amount at the end of each month for a start. You wouldn't believe how difficult it is to get the right amount of pay at the end of a month. When they have well-being problems, we need to support them with that. We need, there are so many things that we could be doing to support our medical workforce. And that goes for our nurses, our allied health professionals, our therapists. It goes for every single part of the health and care workforce in Wales. But we're not thinking about it strategically and we don't have the data and the information and it is a fundamental part of solving a problem that you need to know what you're dealing with before you can start coming up with solutions. And we don't have that information. Larry's absolutely correct here. There's been this sort of myopia that's existed. We've failed to plan our workforce. You know, if you take, take me as an example, I walked into the University of Wales College of Medicine in 1990. 19 years later, I was appointed consultant surgeon in Swansea Bay University Health Board, or Abertawi, Brumagang as it was then. So you know, we can't, you can't just go out and find doctors, nurses, physiotherapists, occupational therapists. There has to be planning, and we've failed to plan for this. There are 130,000 nurses too few in the United Kingdom, with probably about 12,000 too few doctors in the United Kingdom. You, know, you have to mention the effect of Brexit as well. We've lost staff from the National Health Service because of Brexit. So you know, we have strategies in Wales, when I was an undergraduate in Cardiff, we had about 170 medical students per year. I gave a, a recent talk in University Hospital in Cardiff a few weekends ago. There's 300 undergraduates in each year. Uh, I'm part of the uh, Swansea University Graduate Entry Medical School. We've doubled our um, medical school uh, student numbers to 150 now. And we have a nascent medical school in, in Bangor. So we are building things, but it's not a case of you can't train up healthcare professionals in a matter of six weeks to three months there's a, a, an awful amount of training that we go through in order to, to to get to the positions that we get to there are strategies out there we can truncate the training programs but then you have staff who aren't as as well trained as previous generations of healthcare professionals so all the strategies that we talk about whether it, it's developing uh, surgical hubs whatever the workforce is the main issue. That is the elephant in the room is that we don't have enough people to work, not just in the Welsh NHS, but in, in, in the UK NHS. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with John that it's quite worrying when you see that there are business cases being funded within the NHS for more consultant sessions. But the problem I'm being told by the consultants who are trying to fill those is that the consultants don't exist to do them. So the money is there, but the people don't exist. Um, I mean, John's absolutely right about the medical schools we've seen Cardiff Swansea and Bangor all increase their spaces you know it's great that in 10-15 years we'll have a new cohort of consultants but what do we do for the next 10-15 years so I think and that's a thorny issue that I don't think anybody's got an easy answer to. I would agree even Jeremy Hunt was on Radio 4 a few weeks ago saying that you know they, they underplayed the numbers you know we, we, we've got this wrong we haven't got the workforce to fill, fill these jobs you know we are working over and above our stated hours at the moment in order to get on top of these the waiting lists. You know, we're doing additional clinics and we're trying to operate, you know, uh, on, on, on weekends and whatnot. But there, we are having financial hits as a consequence of that. 
And it's not something I really want to go into this evening, so I don't know enough about it. But if we are going to get financial penalties by increasing our workload in order to overcome the backlog, that's an issue. That's a real issue. I don't know, Larry, maybe you'll help me with this. Well, I remember when I was uh, doing A-levels and you know, everyone was applying for university. And I had, say, 30-odd people in my year who wanted to study medicine or with you know, top grades, etc. But only one of that 30 got a medical school place. Now, would you be able to explain to someone like me, and I'm sure quite a few of the people listening, why was this uh, decision made to, to, you know, to, to limit medical school places so much that we're now sort of left with this kind of problem that we see in the present day? It's a very interesting question, actually. I mean, I'm fortunate enough to do some work with local schools where I do mock interviews for prospective medical and dental students. I must say the enthusiasm to pursue a career in medicine or indeed dentistry hasn't gone away. A lot of these youngsters are still very keen. They still see something in um, you know, pursuing a career in medicine. I would say the entry requirements to get into medical school are far higher these days. You know, when I, you know, I applied to medical school at the end of the 1980s, 1990, and my office from some of the London colleges were, were three Cs. Now these are straight A star students, and they have to have done a number of other things on top of it, whether they excel in sport or music, and they've, you know, they, they've done lots of charity work and lots of other things as well. So it's incredibly competitive. And I think we've lost our focus about what actually makes a good doctor. I'm only talking about, about doctors here, obviously, but I think what you need is a strong work ethic and common sense. And you can't measure that by just having very high grades at, at, at A level and have these other things as well. So the enthusiasm hasn't gone away from these youngsters coming through. But unfortunately, as they progress through medical school, certainly when I, when I, when I was in, in Cardiff, very large number of, of my year wanted to pursue careers in, in, in surgery, for example. And, you know, I think what, what is rather prescient is, is, is fewer than 13% of consultant surgeons who work in the United Kingdom are females. And, you know, we have lost potentially a number of talented, hardworking people because of work pressures. And that is something I'm happy to say in the Royal College of Surgery of England that we are addressing at the moment. There has been this inability to, to, to match the requirement for doctors in Wales, and we, we're paying the price for it. So it's, it's complicated as well, I think. I mean, in answer to your direct question there, Matt, basically, there's a cap on medical school places because it is insanely expensive to train a medical student. And, you know, that money, because the medical students themselves, they pay the 9000 thousand you know the nine thousand pounds that that other students do but they are subsidized to a much higher degree by the department for education in their home nation so for every student the welsh government funds to do medicine they are paying a huge amount of money quite possibly for people who are coming in from other parts of the uk or from overseas who will go home again afterwards now there's a whole raft of interconnected issues here and and, and nobody's at fault as such but you know Cardiff for example is an excellent university they want to maintain that reputation as an excellent university in the university world you maintain that reputation by having research and by having people who are published and by having so there are all sorts of things around the candidates that Cardiff wants to attract that means that they are taking fewer children in some cases from the communities in Wales that those students would return to afterwards 
private school education, it's a big deal in medicine. If you have a parent who is a doctor, if you have a private school education, uh, you are at a much bigger advantage than children who have gone to a school in the valleys who have no connections, who've done no work experience because they don't have a mother who's a GP who can let you sit in her clinics. And so, and so there's a whole raft of, of, of inequalities issues there, I suppose, where if you are from Wales, you are probably more likely to come home to Wales to settle. But if you are private, privately educated, if you're from England, if you get a space at Cardiff because you've got your three A stars and you've done extremely well at school and you've, you've got all of your extracurricular activities and you've played in the orchestra and you've sung in the choir and you've done all of the other things that you're supposed to do to get into medicine, you're probably going to go home after medical school. You're probably going to go back to what you know and where your family is, which is entirely understandable and completely fair enough. But it does mean that there is there is the potential then that we are training a whole raft of students in Welsh universities that aren't then going to stay. And, and, and then, then it becomes also complex because it's important to have people moving in and out of the country. I mean, that's really good for, for culture and for, for diversity. And it's good for, you know, it's good for different ideas and different, you know, and people mixing in different cultures. But it does mean that there is a real risk that the money that Welsh government gives to Cardiff University to train medical students leaves the country, if you will, when the medical students leave. Lois, once again, hit the nail on the head there, but we're also seeing a number of, of particularly junior doctors who are going abroad to work. And certainly one of my uh, senior house officers who, was, who worked for me a couple of years ago, had just spent a couple of years in Australia. And I asked him, you know, what was it like working in Australia? He said, well, it was great. He said, we, we worked a bit harder than, than you do back home, he said, but we were taking home about twice what I was earning when I was working in Morrison Hospital. And, you know, you've got to, that's got to be taken into account as well. We want to attract doctors to work in Wales for the reasons that, that we've already discussed, but we've got to have something to, to, to offer them. This is an interesting conversation, I think, for someone like me from Cardiff, who you know, grew up around the corner from the Heath Hospital, uh, I think it's a very different kind of conversation to someone who lives in rural Wales. Just how hard is it attracting doctors to those rural communities in Wales, especially when there's very limited supply of medical schools, et cetera, in those areas, John? Yeah, I mean, one of the conversations I remember having with a consultant colleague of mine some years ago is that as much as I'm a, I'm a great advocate of, of the Welsh language, I'm not a Welsh speaker, but I've chosen to educate my children through Welsh medium school in Cardiff, and I'm, I'm very happy with that choice. But if there's, there's, there's limited English medium education, particularly in the, in, in the West of, of, of Wales, so if, for example, you were a, a GP who trained, for example, in Birmingham, maybe you've got some young children who are, I don't know, eight or 10 years of age, in order to relocate, to the beautiful sort of west coast of Wales, you know, to a nice general practice and whatnot. If you can't educate your, your children in the chosen um, medium, it's difficult, you know, which is why I think we need, we need to attract uh, local people, uh, local, um, you know, youngsters to go to medical school and want to relocate to their communities. That is a problem that we have. We don't have it here in, in sort of in, in South Wales, in Cardiff. We don't have the issues in Swansea, but there are many areas, particularly in rural Wales, where it's very difficult to attract people to come and work for, for, those, for those reasons. I mean, there's an expression, and I think it, you can't be what you can't see. I think if you are growing up in a community where 
you you can't see that medicine is an option for you. And and, and when I say medicine, I, I don't mean just doctors. I, I mean nurses, therapists, allied health professionals. I mean, when I was growing up, I never heard of an occupational therapist. You know, what a fabulous career for somebody. We're not open enough about what those options are and what those career pathways are and what those jobs do. And there are pockets of good practice. There are pockets of widening participation, but it's not joined up. And I don't think it's on a large enough scale to really to really persuade sick formers that actually there are there are options out there that aren't just being a surgeon or or you know being a GP. Actually, there are so many other routes in. But then again, it comes down to the number of training places. Actually, we don't have any problem getting kids in to those training schemes. So you know, the Royal College of Nursing says they never have any problem filling training placements. What they'd like is more training placements. And and so that then comes back around again to to money. It comes back around to whether or not HEIW are willing to pay for those extra training placements or, or, or able to pay for those extra training placements. Yeah, I agree. I mean, one of the things that the, the Senate have, have agreed is that if, if nursing students agree to, to stay in Wales for, for two years post-training, they will have a bursary. I mean, that, that isn't consistent across the United Kingdom. But, you know, for, from, a, from a nursing point of view, to, to, to come out with a degree in nursing saddled with 40 or 50,000 pounds worth of debt to be starting on the money that these young nurses are starting on isn't an attractive proposition. You know, we have a graduate entry medical school in Swansea and some of, some of our students have got six-figure debts, you know, and that's, that's, that's really, really difficult and something that we've got to take into account here. You know, we have taken a step in Wales where we have said, particularly with nursing students, two years, if you're doing uh, nursing, midwifery, allied health, you have a bursary. And that's got to be the way forward. Whilst we're on the subject of, of money, whilst, you know, no one's ever going to turn more money down, do you think that some of the pressures in the Welsh NHS could are, are best served by just investing more in it? it it's chicken and egg, isn't it? You know, investing more money in the NHS doesn't make a blind bit of difference if you don't have the staff to deliver the service. But of course, where do you get the staff from if you're not willing to pay money to train them? The COVID, the Nightingale hospitals, they weren't called Nightingale hospitals in Wales, but you know what I mean, the, the, the field hospital, sorry, the field hospital in Cardiff. I mean, they, they saw barely any patients, not because they weren't fit for purpose, but because you couldn't staff them. We didn't have spare nurses and doctors and, and, and therapists waiting in the wings. So I think, you know, we can talk about investment in the NHS and, you know, I'm never going to I'm never going to say no to more money for the NHS. But actually, we know Audit Wales found last year that health boards had to give back a huge sum of money, you know, hundreds of millions for planned care, because actually they don't have the capacity to deliver the planned care services the Welsh government will pay them for. So, you know, they don't have enough staff. They don't have enough space. The capital, um, the uh, estates. Are, you know, are falling apart in some parts of Wales. So, you know, the hospital buildings, there's no space for outpatients. So it's not so much the amount of money, it's where it's being spent. I was at a really interesting digital healthcare summit earlier this week. One of the questions that came up was, we're discussing all of this great good practice, but how do we make sure that that's rolled out at scale? How do we make sure that actually, instead of putting small pockets of money here and small pockets of money there and changing the way that we behave in individual teams, which is what we do now, really. How do we make sure that every single health board picks up a model of care that we know works and implements it and drives that forward? Because actually, 
if we're not all working together and collaborating across health board boundaries, then nothing's going to change in the long term. No, I, I agree. I mean, it would be naive to suggest the NHS doesn't require more money, but how we're spending that money, um, you know, we need to look at efficiencies. We, we, we're, the Royal College of Surgeons is trying to drive this idea about elective hubs. And one of the reasons why certain health boards have performed better during the COVID pandemic is because some health boards were able to utilise these elective hubs as green pathways and keep on top of the, of, of, of the backlog. Other health boards, we didn't we didn't have the luxury of that. So, you know, that's why we've got bigger weight in this than other areas. We need to look at efficiencies, but you know, it is the elephant in the room when it comes to health service, is we 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 have to discuss funding. Where's that money coming from? If we want to have healthcare free at the point of need from general taxation, that's fine. Because I think if we look at the alternatives, you know, I'm mindful of the fact that we, in terms of the G7. Countries, I think it's only Italy that's below us in terms of how much money that we invest in our health service. It's not a case of we just want more and more money, but how we use that money more effectively to deliver the requirements for, for the Welsh population. That, that is what needs to be discussed. It's not where that money is coming from or how much we have, despite the fact that we will require more money. And I think we need to be braver as well about the way the health service is run. I mean, review after review, dating back as far as 2016, the OECD brought out a review of, of the healthcare system in Wales that said, look, it needs a stronger central guiding hand. There are seven health boards. You know, at the time, there were three NHS trusts and they were all going off and doing their own thing. They'd been given high level principles, perhaps for Welsh government, high level delivery plans, not extra funding in quite a lot of cases or at least not sufficient funding. But every health board was told, we set the national policy, you decide how you deliver that locally. And actually, all that's done really is result in huge regional variations in care. Um, and, and, you know, it's a horrible phrase, but postcode lottery fits the bill. If you have an acute oncological emergency and you live in Pembrokeshire, your standard of care is likely to be not as good as if you have an acute oncological emergency in Cardiff simply because the facilities and the services haven't been set up in the same way, haven't been resourced in the same way, haven't been staffed in the same way. And that's not the fault of the people working in those services. That is simply because nobody has sat those health boards down and said, this is what you should be doing to make sure that a cancer patient in a crisis should receive this sort of care. And I think review after review has recommended that stronger central guiding hand and review after review has been ignored. I think Welsh government need to be braver in saying to health boards, actually, this is what we expect from you. Would you be in favour at all of, as has been suggested many times, moving some funding out of frontline services and putting more into preventative healthcare, perhaps funding local authorities? Yeah, certainly. I mean, my, my major interest is in, is in morbid obesity. So I see, I, I deal with patients who have complications associated with, with carrying too much weight. And the, the way forward for these patients is not to get into that situation to start with. You know, we have seven out of the, well, if you look at the United Kingdom, seven out of the 10 worst areas for morbid obesity are, are in Wales and six out of 10 of those are in, are in South Wales. So really what we need to do is, is, is focus more attention, particularly in, in, in the younger, so in children, in terms of, you know, what sort of diet that they should be eating at home, more, more preventative uh, strategies in terms of, of, of exercise, for example. 
Unfortunately, that's been lost over the last sort of three to four decades because we've ended up in this situation. You know, we've got a huge problem with morbid obesity in Wales. I think there's also something there about wider inequality. So we know uh, that, you know, only about 15 to 20 percent of somebody's health and well-being is related to health services. So I think there's a there's a real risk that we talk about things like health inequalities and obesity, and we blame that all on the NHS not having done enough. Actually, it's about poverty. It's about income. It's about access to green space. It's about access to public transport. It's about a whole myriad of other things. It's all interconnected. Inequalities, especially health inequalities, are not about the NHS and social care. It's about everything else. It's about the environment that you live in. We know that people who live in unhealthier environments, who are surrounded by uh, junk food shops, I mean, we know we know that deprived areas have a much larger prevalence of, you know, fried chicken shops. That's just a, that's a fact. We know that. And so there's a real risk that we end up just sort of laying all of this at the door of the NHS. And I'm not saying the NHS doesn't have a role to play in, in tackling some of this, but actually it's a cross-government issue. Poverty isn't something that can be solved by the NHS, and it's poverty that causes ill health. You know, I mean, it would be fantastic to see a cross-government delivery plan. What I'd really like to see is every single department throwing their targets and actions into the ring on inequality, because what the, the pushback we get from government when we talk about this is, well, we're all busy doing stuff on inequality. We don't need a cross-government plan because we're all doing it. The Wellbeing of Future Generations Act exists. We're doing it already. It's very hard not to say to them, well, the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act has been in place for almost 10 years. Where are the results? How do we know it's working? How are we measuring those outcomes? How are we making sure that it isn't just a piece of paper that everybody is ticking off their list when they do their, um, when they do their um, equality assessments? You know, where are our health, health impact assessments that we were promised five years ago? So there's a whole raft of things where, you know, it, it's the same old story. We're not measuring, we're not collecting the data, we're not looking at what that data tells us, we're not learning from the data. We don't fully understand the problem and we're not making sure that every single part of government is thinking about inequalities in all of the work that it does. And I, and I think that's a really missed opportunity. Yeah, no, I agree. This, this is essentially the, the Black Report. You know, I remember um, studying this as, as in, in my first year in medical school. It's all about social deprivation and inequalities. And that's why we have such a sick population in Wales. We can't get away from the fact that there are huge variations in income, employment, housing, diet, et cetera, et cetera. And this is why, as a, as, as a nation, we, we are so unhealthy. You know, it's not, a, it's, it's not the, the, the failure of the NHS in Wales. It's a failure of social policy that we've ended up in this situation where we have very poor people with, with poor choices. You know, we, we know that smoking rates in people in, in lower income families are, are twice that than higher income families. And all of these, these factors play into the fact that we have a, an unhealthy population. Going to move us on now to social care. I mean, a lot was made at the last Senate election about the prospect of an integrated national health and social care system and social care free at the point of use. What kind of impact would that have on the ability of the NHS to function and just how likely is it to happen? When I was a junior doctor in the Royal Gwent Hospital in 1996, every single day we had a social worker on the ward. What that meant was when these people were able to be discharged from hospital. It wasn't the case that they would just go straight home, but they need some sort of step-down facility. Every single patient who's in a bed in a hospital doesn't require 
a big operation, um, various radiological scans, some expensive treatments. People just need to be looked after. And they don't need to be in these acute hospitals. These patients can then be moved to other facilities. Okay, we used to have a lot of these facilities when I, when I was a junior. A lot of people just need to, you know, if, you, if, if, you, if you're an elderly man with dementia who's got a, a unit tract infection, you just need to somebody to sit down beside and hold their hand and say, everything's going to be okay. We're going to make sure that, you, you know, that you're, you're clean and you're fed and you, you, know, you have plenty to drink. They don't need to be in these acute hospitals. And the uncoupling of social care from health care has one of the reasons why we have such high bed occupancy. It's not a problem of getting patients into hospital. It's a problem of getting patients out of hospital. And I think we've lost that. We had a number of step-down facilities years ago, and they're all gone now. I'm critical of um, people who refer to these patients as bed blockers. That's pejorative term. These people are not bed blockers. These are patients who need looking after. They don't necessarily need looking after in acute hospital in an acute hospital situation. So the uncoupling of social health care has been to the detriment of the care that we give to the people of Wales. So we need to rejoin that. We need to treat social care in the same way that we treat the health service, join them up, fund them appropriately, and then hopefully we can get patients out of the acute hospital into the relevant settings. I mean, it's, it's, there's so many things to unpick. You know, I, I agree with John. But there are so many things to unpick in this. You know, we've lost 2,000, we've lost at least 2,000 beds over the last few years from, from hospitals in Wales. Um, you know, there has been this drive towards reducing bed capacity, even as patient demand grows. Um, so again, it doesn't even make sense on paper, let alone in real life. You know, the, the NHS Confed this morning announced that there were 1,500 people waiting in hospitals around Wales who were medically fit for discharge, but didn't have a social care placement to go to. Um, we know that social care is struggling to recruit, partly because they are losing people to other sectors. You know, not, they're not just joining other sectors, they're also joining the NHS, because actually being an NHS employee is a fabulous, you know, it, it, there's, there are fabulous benefits to being an NHS employee as opposed to a social care uh, employee on, you know, even on the, even on the living wage that, that, that the Welsh Government have, have, have brought in. So... There are a whole set of questions around joining up health and social care. I think that if you were to bring social care into the NHS, then you would have a much bigger wage bill because you would have to pay them at an NHS rate. And so I think there's going to be some reluctance about that. I am fascinated to see what the applied labour agreement comes back with. They're looking to publish, I think, at the end of this year or the beginning of next sort of preliminary findings. The idea of a national care service in principle is a great idea, but how you overcome the cost implications, the reorganization. And also, I think fundamentally, this is about leadership and culture. You don't stop people working in silos just because you suddenly give them a single HR department. It, it's a culture change that has to come from the top. And I, I think that social care, you know, like mental health, has traditionally been seen as a bit of a poor relation. How we move towards a world in which social care is as prestigious a career as healthcare, I don't know. I don't have the answers for that one. But I, I think there's certainly nothing wrong with the idea and principle of bringing the two together, how that happens in practice and how we make a success of that. And we don't just end up with, as I say, you know, a single HR department, but siloed groups of professionals. That's more complicated. The next question I have, which relates to that is, is how difficult would this be to do? I mean, I think every healthcare professional believes it should be done. 
But what are the major barriers to making it happen? Welsh Government have, in the last four or five years, tried to look at local authority boundaries. And that was painful enough to watch. There was so much pushback from local government. There was so much pushback from, you know, their own within their own party. It's all gone very quiet on that front. If you started talking about social taking social care away from local authorities and putting it in with healthcare, are you talking about taking social care away from local authorities and giving it to the NHS? Are you talking about taking healthcare away from health boards and giving it to social care in local authorities? Like there's a whole set of very thorny political with a small p questions that would have to be answered and there for every single solution you come up with there will be people who are vehemently opposed and vehemently pro that would need some very strong clear decisive leadership and i I, i'm not sure whether the appetite is there at government level at the moment to have that fight larry you just mentioned it there the attempt you know there's there's been an attempt in recent years to ensure that there is a a parity between mental and physical health just how far along that road are we to achieving that it's positive i think that it's on the radar of politicians in a way that it hasn't been in the past but there is no competition between mental health services and the firefighting of ambulances queuing up 16 to the to the queue around the front door of a hospital the problem, the problem for the NHS is that money will always be ploughed into that front door. It will be always ploughed into how do we get people out of ambulances and into the front door. It won't be ploughed into those services that kind of limp along in the background because actually it's quite rare that somebody has such a mental health crisis that it's going to actually result in, in, in them taking their own life, for example. Most, most people are, who are living with mental health needs are living with some sort of medium to low level depression or anxiety. It is affecting maybe their day-to-day life and their relationships and the way that they work and the way that they live, but it isn't necessarily a crisis. And I think that it is very difficult for the NHS to take three steps out, three steps out of the current firefighting situation they find themselves in and to do anything other than keep pouring money into that very acute physical manifestation of health because you know it is the people sitting on the floor of the emergency department because there are no chairs and there are no trolleys that is obvious you can see that whereas somebody who is struggling with their quality of life and is is really struggling to get out of bed every morning that's not having that same impact it doesn't mean it's not as important but when you have competing priorities health boards are always going to try and spend the money where they can see the problems well, I suppose the, the, the area that people see the, the biggest problem at the moment is probably waiting lists. And I know that Kerry would have a go at me if I didn't try and bring this back to waiting lists for the end. But there is no easy answer to the question of reducing waiting lists. But if you had to do one thing that you think that would make the biggest impact in either bringing those waiting lists down in, in pure number or temporally, what would you do, John? I think from a surgical perspective, what we need to do is we need to uncouple scheduled and unscheduled care. I think this is long overdue. Um, you know, we talk about the seven health boards, uh, all of them are set up in order to provide this. We need to have specialist emergency uh, units where we manage the acute surgical intakes. And then we have to have separate sites of which we have enough in Wales where we can get on top of, of the waiting list. So we can have sort of high volume surgical pubs. That's the way forward. It's not so much that there's reluctance but there's some inertia. We haven't moved fast enough on this. You know, I'm familiar with what our waiting lists are in Swansea Bay in terms of, you know, if, if you've got a, I, I use the term loosely, a benign condition. So if you haven't got cancer, if you've got something like, 
you know, you're waiting for your gallbladder operation or your hernia or your knee replacement. These are not priorities because they're not perceived to be something that's going to kill you. <laughs> like, for example, you know, if you had, I don't know, soft cancer or something. So these patients are waiting on waiting lists and it is miserable. If you can't walk around because your knee is too painful, if you can't, you know, have something to eat because you're getting abdominal pain because of your gallstones, it's miserable. And the ramifications of these sort of chronic health, health conditions on their mental health, on their you know, relationships with their families, the fact they can't go out for a walk with their dog because you know, their hip is too painful. You know, we have to take those things into account. We have to develop this splitting of the, the, the emergency and scheduled care, and we have to get on top of, the, of these, these waiting lists because without doing that, we're not going to make significant inroads. Speaking as a surgeon, we have to be operating. We have to get on top of, of, of this backlog. I agree with John. I think that it is by separating um, planned and unscheduled care that we will make some inroads into waiting lists. But I think that there is a very important, and it's, it, it's nice because it brings us back full circle, there's a really important aspect to that, to this, and that is workforce. You're, if you're talking about opening up extra sites, you need to staff both sites. You cannot, for example, take your entire surgical staff out of the unscheduled care centre and put them in their elective surgical hub because who's going to deal with the people coming in through the front door who, who need surgical treatment? So, you know, at the elective surgical hubs, you'll need physicians or, or, or medical specialists to provide the aftercare. You know, so if, if, if something happens um, after surgery and they deteriorate, you're going to need that kind of that, that input from, from maybe other specialties. So it's a complex issue. And I think the, the, I mean, the, the Royal College of Surgeons has, you know, admitted themselves. I mean, they, they, they put together a really excellent paper on, on, on the opportunities around elective surgical hubs, but they point out one of the big issues is going to be workforce, that actually we don't have a workforce that can staff the hospitals we already have. And so staffing extra centres is, is going to pose a problem. I mean, we've seen that in, in, in Gwent. They opened the Grange 18 months ago, which was essentially a fourth site for an air in Bevan, if you, if you count the Royal Gwent, Neville Hall and Aspati um, Estravaur. Um, so you've got three hospitals, three rotors, which were already pretty stretched, let's face it, because, you know, as we said at the beginning of this, we didn't go into the pandemic with a, with a surplus of, of, of healthcare professionals. And then they've opened this fourth site. They've centralised a lot of the specialties, which is fantastic for those specialties because they're all in one place now. But actually, the medical rotors, they've split across four sites without sufficient additional staff. And it means that the model of care in an and Bevan is just collapsing, um, collapsing at the seams because, quite frankly, there aren't enough people on the ground to treat the number of patients coming through. And that is not something that the health board appear to have taken into account. So I think the principle of what John is saying, absolutely sound, but as with everything, it's how you implement that and how you make sure it works properly. You can't cut corners. And I'm afraid that workforce is going to be the big stumbling block for this. I'm on the same page with you there completely about workforce, but as you say, we've come full circle. But what I would not like to see is just to draw a halt on those plans that, you know, this is the model that we need to move forward. And just from an anecdotal perspective, I was with a colleague of mine who works in the north of England at a meeting back in May, 
And I said to him, how are things going from your uh, bariatric surgery perspective? How is it through the pandemic? He said it wasn't an issue. He said in, a, in, in his area, they had one acute surgical unit where they took all the emergencies and three peripheral, peripheral hubs where they kept on top of things. You're absolutely right about, about the workforce. I don't think we're calling for, for additional new builds. I don't think we have the, the ability to, to, to build these new units, but I think we have enough um, infrastructure in Wales to develop those hubs with what we've got at the moment. Yes, I wanted to say to, to both of you, thank you so much for coming on this evening. You've both been uh, absolutely incredible guests. If people want to find you both on Twitter, where can they go? John? At JohnBar24. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Lori? At Lori Rhiannon, or you can follow me at my work account, which is at RCP Wales. Wonderful. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard this evening, please don't forget to find Hereife on social media, on Twitter and on Facebook, at Hereife Pod, or at our website, www.walespolitics.com. Thank you for listening to Hereife. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review.